From the north, citizens of the globe, welcome. We live in interesting times indeed. It's not long ago the name Davos only brought vague association of some boring, self-important officials having at it in their talking head bubbles. But now, post-Covid, it has become a reality for most people who can afford to pay half attention of what's going on in the world around them, that it is referencing the network of all Western leaders, not just politically, but in all walks of public life, from money to security. In fact, the World Economic Forum has achieved what everyone expected from the likes of Bilderberger conferences, but... Like Ole Damegaard and Tony Gosling told us when I had them on, these are all connected networks of the ruling Western elites who have thousands of outlets for their various needs. And what or who they don't own, they can afford to hijack and bribe. Each serving its function in the grand scheme of their ideology and benevolent plans for us the useless mouth-breathers, the proletariat. Oh, I suppose I should pause here and give you a belated, serious rant alert. But it is not evil that drives them. It's the banality of evil. It is the collapse of checks and balances that allows power to run amok among the most mediocre, among the smallest of us driven by non-scientific ideologies bordering on religion, like Malthusianism, eugenics, authoritarianism, neoconservatism, neoliberalism, globalism, etc. It is all being funneled into a totalitarian global mass surveillance security state run as corporatism by the military intel industry, serving the oligarchs, and capturing any remaining institution of function of democracy, which I remind you mean rule by the people, and putting its blood-lettered carcass on display as their mask. First, they came for the poor and working class, but you were not among them, so you slept. Then they came for the middle class, farmers and small business owners, and you wept Now they are coming for you, via the centralization of absolutely all meaningful power, the digitalization of money and controlling your means to manage them, and the elimination of free speech and controlling your means to express yourself, and the dismantling of consumer rights, individual privacy and humanistic values, and there's none left to defend you. Except we have each other. We are still the 99%. We can still make a difference. And this is exactly what they fear. In fact, it's the only thing they fear at this stage, which is why they also need absolute control over all means of communication and information, which is why they have not only complete control of corporate media, 
but also is cracking down on that annoying, unpredictable delay factor known as the internet. We know they're lying. They know they're lying. They know that we know they're lying. We also know that they know that we know they're lying. And yet they still lie. To quote Solzhenitsyn, it's not just because they are trying to deceive the dumbest among us. It's also to show the awakened ones that there's a new order, that they can lie and get away with it, that none seemingly care. They are brazen to show us our place. That's what Assange is all about. He is us, so we shall know our place. So the old adage, when government fears the people, there is liberty. When the people fear the government, there is tyranny, is still true. And although the balance has shifted far into the latter, to make it swing back, we need to inform each other and ourselves, by whatever means we've got left. There's an information war, and the goal isn't just to invert everything and make black-white vice versa. It's also to have the excuse and alibi to crack down on any glimmer of objection or truth shining through and exposing their hypocrisy. They can't have a small boy shouting, the emperor is without clothes. And more importantly, they need to keep us divided. They need you to be angry at your neighbor. You have to believe the problem is a particular religion, a political wing, a specific groupism, those who wear or do not wear masks. Anything but the actual entities in the makeup of the corporatistic world order. A good example is the recent pandemic paradigm, which is slowly cracking left and right, notwithstanding from people's own experiences, but, of course, before a critical mass wakes up to righteous indignation and pick up torches and pitchforks, there's nothing like a good international geopolitical crisis and a few wars close to home, or maybe a complete economic collapse, as a smokescreen, as a Reichstag's fire to distract whilst looting, whilst accelerating the process of complete class war. By the end of it, very few will have any personal means left. We will all be cogs in the corporatism system and own nothing. That much is true. But they are wrong about wanting. We will not be happy. And we always have our torches and pitchforks, even if they are just digital. Just look at the floodgates Musk is opening at Twitter, probably not really knowing the deluge it may unleash. However, a major gap we, the scattered, divided, infighting people, have left before we can come together right now over them is to understand that the insanity and implosions we see in field after field are not generic, unavoidable, coincidental evolutionary or natural collapses, but an effect of causes, of coherent orchestrated efforts, whether by malice, ignorance, greed or what have you, and it is this full survey of how the dots are connected which is still missing among our brothers and sisters, the sleepwalkers, but which they, we, are gradually waking up to, despite their obstructions and suppressions. Aye, the fight goes on for every piece of mis, dis and malinformation they spew at us. We will counter them with factomation, truthomation and lightomation. This is why 
today you will hear stuff like this. In actual fact, what my research shows is that these people were actually writing about what their mates envisioned the future looking like. Mm. So, you know, a lot of their, their friends in power were saying, well, we're going to go towards this and this, and then eventually technocracy will take over and everybody will be living with machines and you'll be able to eventually be part machine yourself. And, you know, all of these ideas work their way into the stories. All of these um, ideas end up becoming part of our modern culture. And the same people who were telling the same type of people, the same lineage, family lineage uh, of people, the same... Uh, uh, the same sort of people were are still going towards that vision now. And it's something that is, as we get closer and closer, and we realize there's all of these things that we see as warnings, um, they see as the future. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we're screaming, stop, we got to slow down. And they're saying, no, we've been doing this for longer than you've noticed we've been doing this. Mm -hmm. So we know what we're doing. We've thought about it all. Generations, my father, his father, they've all thought about this. So they're very, I think, the other side, the people who are uh, heading full steam towards this dystopian agenda, are partially doing so because they believe they've done all of the math, they've done all of their homework, mm. and they know that this is the future that will be better for humanity, for all of these other reasons where we the normal human beings who don't know about this agenda and the the people who are oblivious to this creation of this sort of imaginative world of the future um that really looks horrible to us um we're awakening to it for the first time yeah. but th these ideas of how to make society suit the elite in the future and this is really what it's about. It's not about the society f being designed to suit people who want to just have a family life and want freedom and want love. This is designed by people who say, in the future, all of this stuff's going to happen. How do we end up on the top of the pile? How do we end up at the top of the hierarchy? How do we keep in control? How do our kids keep controlling the massive population? And for us, it just seems like a horrific nightmare. For them it seems obvious and it yeah. seems like the yeah. only way to go and it's the path they're on not many people can stop a juggernaut if you are a dr strangelove or if you are a bond villain and you want to take over the world this would be the manual that you not just infiltrate the bureaucracy and every state institution because that's a threat to any powers that be because it's democratic and um, governed by the people, whereas China and Soviet Union would be harder to penetrate because they would be they would have their own power elite. Yes, yes. But you take over the governmental institution, then you take over the corporations, if indeed that this is not who <laughs> originally launches it. But corporate that's in the that's in the game of corporations themselves, right? It is to fight mm -hmm. and, and gobble each other up and, and become monopolies. Even Karl Marx back in the day uh, predicted that, that mm -hmm. the nature of corporatism, I hesitate to call it capitalism, because then we're indicated of actual free market, but I'm talking about corporatism, which is what we're trapped in today, yeah. is to gobble up and become a monopoly. So that you take over, and then it's just natural that you have to take over NGOs, because even if they do not have the intention of power, they are still a power player in that they can wake people up, they can be a check and balance, and uh, 
So they are a natural thing to take over. Of course, media, all means of communication, that goes without saying. His grandfather was called Gottfried Schwab. That's what they called him. That's what he was known as. Because his first name was Jakob. So Jakob Wilhelm Gottfried Schwab. Jakob was a very Jewish name. Mm. And because of that, I think he left that behind and started going by the much more German Gottfried Schwab. Um, so that, that, that he could, because the area he was in, um, that he was born in, had only lifted a ban on Jews entering into the region, just like like 30 years before, I think it is. Mm. So he was in a, a, a place in Germany that was historically extremely anti-Semitic. They had blood libels. They dragged out, they accused uh, Jewish people who lived there of um, sacrificing babies in blood rituals. Oh, that's and, yeah. yeah, and then they, they dragged... I, I mean, it happened all over the region, all over the all around where Klaus Schwab was brought up. was extremely anti-Semitic. Uh, that means that his father was very important. Uh, first of all, I think the Nazis let them, the Red Cross, have that thing so that their production facilities would be untouched by the Allies. But th yeah. this means that Albert Speer probably knew his father then, because this is such a crucial thing yeah. for the war effort. The Americans, once they decided, okay, we're going to test out these uh, the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yeah. they went to a briefing with a load of other Western officials, um, and the British said, no, no, let's just firebomb them. Let's just use like a form of napalm mm. because all of the houses in Japan and in in Tokyo, the majority of them, apart from the center, combustible, yeah, yeah. is it was all made of wood and paper, so mm. we could burn everybody alive. And this was how that idea would would have caused so much casualties when they estimate how many casualties that that idea that the British were pushing would have caused so much casualty, so many casualties that it actually became kinder idea to use <laughs> atomic bombs on the Russia. Shima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Again, they get stuck between these two, this paradigm where you've got two choices. Mm. And this is what this is what the people in power do all the time. Lesser of two evil, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're constantly have the truth uh, being led to one or the other, and neither of them are going to be your saviour. Both of them are going to see uh, horrendous activities. Mm. By that point, the Swiss had been on such good terms and were basically in bed with Klaus Schwab because mm. it was good for them to have this ski resort become this elite place where yeah. the uh, every year in January you at the the peak of winter you got good skiing and you go up and you get to hang around. We always see like the the ski resorts of Davos as being these uh, yeah. places where the high and mighty hang out. Well, that's been created. It didn't used to be like that, I'm sure. Uh -huh. But but Davos basically was a nice resort uh, set up there. Um, I, I know that in, I think it was 1992 or 1993, the World Economic Forum event happened in Ukraine. Wow. after the, the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. I don't think there's many changes. I think it's nearly always been in Davos. But it was set up there, and it was helped to fruition by the American intelligence state. We've got only a certain amount of enemies yeah. are coming at the final point of this battle. We've lost the political and policy battle yeah. by a long way. That mm. time of changing that is gone. People are like, oh, look at all these young global leaders. Oh, they're already in charge in my home country, in Britain. There hasn't been a, the last two have not been elected. 
So you, you're, we're already in a place where it's going to speed up this next process. Yeah, this Indian guy who just took over. Yeah. Not only is he an oligarch, but he's straight out of WEF too. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they all are now. And the other one who was in charge of the trust was Young Global Leader. And Boris Johnson was even down on the site oh, as Young Global Leader. And David Cameron, Young Global mm. Leader. And what about uh, Ed Bulls and Ed Miliband, who were their opposition while David Cameron in mm. Young Global Leaders? Yeah. All of them, uh, you know, the only ones who have haven't been young global leaders even william hague was the young global leader wow. um in british politics the only ones who haven't have really been um in the frontline politics have been theresa may and jeremy corbyn and theresa may would do anything for anybody and uh <laughs> if, the, if enough money is applied now to help us unravel details about so major figures of the highest echelon of global policy makers we have on johnny wedmore who is a genuine investigative researcher, independent journalist, musician, producer, police auditor, data angel, and activist from Wales. He graduated in GNVQ from St. Talos in 99 and started a decade-long career in travel, hotels, and tourism industry, among others as a receptionist, supervisor, shift leader, security operator, night manager, and hotel manager, with a year in France working for Hilton and becoming bilingual. He also worked in education and care, oriental arts, plus a year in the gaming industry for Virgin in their administration. But in 2010, he went into the music industry as a musician, songwriter, singer, producer, presenter and video creator with several releases of his music. But Vedmore's passion for investigation and journalism also manifested in those years, leading to a decade-long deep diving behind the headlines and revealing the dirty affairs of predators and the powerful. He started with helping people stop data leaks, exposing unethical data usage, gathering evidence, hunting child abusers and pedophiles online, eventually bringing his focus to the big and powerful players. No wonder he's been first to break so many major stories, including Jeffrey Epstein's links to with Nicole Junkerman, Theresa May's father's links to the serial killer John Bodkin Adams, Philip May's company's benefit from the Syrian airstrike, Barbara Hewson's 500 years family history of contrarianism, and many more fact-filled articles. His work, which aims to expose the wealthy, powerful, and elite movers and shakers in the world and their hidden histories, overlooked by other journalists and thus bring new information to the readers, has been published in noteworthy independent media outlets like Unlimited Hangout, UK Column News, Organic Consumers Association, UK Column Podcasts, The Clockwork Orange Times, as well as his own sites yonimedmore.com and fungimonkey.com. Today, he's an expat living in Chile with his partner and their kids. Digging deeper from the Southern Hemisphere, his more recent work are seminal pieces revealing the previously unknown history of the World Economic Forum's Klaus Schwab. Uncle Klaus, his father's links to the Nazi atomic bomb program, Klaus's own involvement in nuclear proliferation, as well as the CIA-funded training of Klaus Schwab and his mentors, including Henry Kissinger and John Kenneth Galbraith. 
And this untold story is precisely what our discussion will circle around today. Enjoy. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Johnny. Ah, nice to be here. Thank you, Alf. Call Me Al it was my favorite song when I was a kid. So exactly, I... like Paul Simon. Yeah, I can remember Many that. people don't get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was my, literally, I I wore out the vinyl. Like, I played it over and over again when I was about, it must have been about six or seven. It was just mind-blowing, that song to wow, me. Wow, and you had it on vinyl. Wow. Yeah, 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 That's yeah. Great. That's so old school. Back in the day. Yes, yeah, yes. old school I remember, for sure. I remember. Yeah. But speaking of old school, I'm so stoked to have you on tonight because you're one of those who can go on until the cows come home, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I love that. I just love that. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty. Like I, I take these things as I got all the knowledge in my head and stuff. So I just, I, I like to take them as they come. To be perfectly honest. Cool. Same as me. We wing it. That, that's, uh, that's uh, why I think podcasts are so popular. Part of the reason because it's like a. People are just a proverbial fly on the wall listening yeah. to a real yeah. conversation, right? Like two friends, two colleagues, whatever. Yeah. And I have no prepped questions. Good, good, good. <laughs> we just go. Okay. I could do that. Not my first rodeo. I'm good. Excellent. But thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate being able to talk to uh, a different audience, Scandinavian audience in this case, yeah. right across the other side of the world from me, where I am at the moment. Um, but this is really important to all of us because this is about uh, globalism. So this is yeah. one of these rare things that affects all of us. Yeah, but but I have a conspiracy hypothesis before we go here, and that's that uh, this VDX scandal, mm -hmm. uh, in addition to being a whitewash and you know there was murder, corruption, sex scandals, it's that's a huge story. But I think one very important thing with that scandal is that they want to use it as an alibi to crush crypto yeah yeah, yeah. especially bitcoin so we'll see but uh, i think that's yeah. they're, they're going to call for that soon and did you see that the uh, wef uh, deleted uh, uh, them from their partnership website yeah I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I, to be perfectly honest a lot of what we me and whitney see coming is like the next year will be the year where they start to introduce the CBDCs to the world, uh, like uh, food to the audience who are completely unaware, not to people like us who are, who know what no. the CBDCs are, but uh, to the other people, this is going to be the year where we start hearing it everywhere and they start advertising it and try and start calling people conspiracy theories. And soon, uh, you know, Bitcoin, things like that will be conspiracy coins, you know? Yeah, These yeah. will be the type of coins that the, the government say, if you go into, you'll have all your money taken you'll have all of this you'll have all of that so so i know there's a lot of bitcoiners who are trying to fight that narrative early but not sure how easy that's going to be they're going to try and crush all of these yeah. all the competition all the competition yeah they can't get their way unless they crush everybody no that's right here in norway for your information they've done an interesting twist mm -hmm. for some years now they had something called vips it's kind of a digital currency, but it's fiat. Yeah. It's that um, it started like a private company. Now they're embedded with the state. So they don't want people to use cash, obviously. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. by using the mobile, I can VIPs from my bank account immediately to you. Click one button, 
uh, through this app, mm-hmm. and then the money is being moved around. So everybody's using it. When you shop, when you do deals, when you give money to your son, whatever, it's like 90% of the economy now is these digital. And already money is digital in the bank account, right? Yeah. So this is fiat. This is the kroner, but it's all being digitalized. So when they introduce the, the real thing, everybody is already primed to use it like that. Yeah. You understand? Yeah, most definitely. But uh, the second of all, before we go, um, you're in Argentina, right? Uh, Chile. I'm in oh, Chile. I'm in Chile. So okay. Just over the other side of the, the of South America. But yeah, I'm in, in Chile. It's a nice day outside. Beautiful. It's a nice country, to be honest. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty chilled out. It's pretty chilled out. <laughs> It's chill, chilly, chill. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Okay, well, I had trouble when I talked with a person in Argentina, Lawrence de Mel. I don't know if you know her. She's been no, no, researching into Nazis, Bormann and stuff. And Ooh, the minute we were supposed to be on, uh, some kind of phone guy cut her line. Hey, hey, hey. He was up on a mast. And the minute we were supposed to be done, Ooh, yeah. her internet come back, came back. <laughs> Got it. And the worst nightmare in the world is when uh, the line screws up such a conversation as this, yeah, or know. if we forget to record, or if there's problem with the recording, <laughs> that's also a nightmare. I know. I, I I've been there a couple of times now. I've been doing a lot of these. Right. But you're um, originally you're what is it? Welsh, Scottish? Yeah. No Welsh. Welsh. Originally, I'm from the land of Wales, the land of the dragon, um, and of course, brought up in uh, United Kingdom. Um, uh, I mean, English speaker uh, because I come from South Wales, where they really, uh, the English really did a good job of getting rid of the Welsh language. So uh-huh. I had, you know, I, I'm I've travelled around a little bit. I've lived in France for a little bit of time, but I, I always stayed in in Wales. I just uh I now I, I you know you meet the love of your life, you fly across the world, you have a baby. <laughs> yeah. And now I find myself in Chile. So uh but it's it's beautiful down here at the moment because it's summertime. So Right. It's all good. Uh, hey on why is that that part of Wales where you're from? No, no, no. But clo- I, I mean, f- relatively close. That's probably about 50 miles away from where I live. But uh, I, I come from Cardiff. I come from the capital of Wales. Um, uh, hey on why is up on the east side of the Brecon Beacons. It's a beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that's where you're, you're it's completely and utterly beautiful little place. Um, there's a lot of little towns on the borderlands of Wales, which have a, a, a amazing mix of cultures, because, of course, they've got the dynamic Welsh culture on on the one side and a very dynamic English culture on the other side. English culture, which is extremely mixed ethnically. I mean, the islands of Britain is a lot of a collection of a lot of different people who settled there thousands of years ago. Mm. Um, and a lot of people don't realize it because now it's been turned into this homogenous United Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, and people, people see it all the same, but uh, it's extremely diverse country that most Europeans aren't quite aware of until they go there and realize that every single part of the country has a different flavor a different taste and definitely like the borderlands of wales hair and wives beautiful beautiful flavor down that way i watched them many years ago with a girlfriend and um, 
We were talking in uh, a local grocery. We were there for the books, right? Mm-hmm. I was. Uh, a co- I'm a collector of occult books, and I found uh, lots of bargains there. And we were in a grocery, and then an old man came over and started talking to us. We didn't understand him, and then he, him or a woman he was with. Oh, they laughed. Okay, I thought we you were Welsh. He said to us, "Oh, it's so <laughs> good to find." Two young people who actually speak Welsh to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There, well, there is a lot of, you know, it, Welsh is such an interesting language. It's so, so particular. But to uh, foreign people, they never, they're not used to hearing Welsh. Um, even to English people, they're not used to, and they often pick it up and think it's another language from another place in the world. Yeah. Um, it's very much like Elvish, yeah. the Lord yeah. of the Rings style Elvish, you know, Welsh is. Uh, and I think that's what Deliberate. Um, uh, Tolkien actually based it on, because I think he was living above Birmingham. Absolutely. And you know what? I, I think he based uh, the uh, Orc language on uh, Turkic languages. Yeah. Because the- they remember the Ottoman Empire was the enemy of Britain back then. Yeah, yeah, there was a there was a lot of uh, propaganda shoved into the fiction of the past that we're only sort of like we we're always like looking at things like 1984, uh, mm. the Time Machine uh, by H.G. Wells and and Tolkien's work, and we see them as something that's irrelevant to our history. They're like these fictional works, but in actual fact, they had a lot of propaganda with within them and a lot of these people like uh were involved in some of the biggest things to happen in history hg wells was involved in some uh big stuff but definitely orwell and huxley and people were were part of uh the the fabian society ah orwell was in the fabian yeah i know i know he was uh involved in the spanish civil war yeah, I'm pretty positive he was a Fabian. I know Huxley definitely was a Fabian. Mm. Um, but there was a lot of that. I mean, writers of that time hung around in groups, created societies so that they could have these friendly clubs that they go and they they, <laughs> they all know they shared the same sort of allegiance to. Um, and and they, they were always one step away from the state. They were always, to, to us, we seem like, oh, they're giving us a warning about the right, future. Right. In actual fact, a, a lot of my, what my research shows is that these people were actually writing about what their mates envisioned the future looking like. Mm. So they were like, uh, you know, a lot of their their friends in power were saying, well, we're going to go towards this and this, and then eventually technocracy will take over and everybody will be living with machines and you'll be able to eventually be part machine yourself. And, you know, all of these ideas work their way into the stories. All of these um, ideas end up becoming part of our modern culture. And the same people who were telling the same type of people, the same lineage, family lineage, lineage uh, of people the same uh the same sort of people were are still going towards that vision now and there's something that is as we get closer and closer and we realize there's all of these things that we see as warnings um they see as the future <laughs> yeah who we, we, we're screaming stop we got to slow down 
And they're saying, no, we've been doing this for longer than you've noticed we've been doing this. Mm -hmm. So we know what we're doing. We've fought about it all. Generations, my father, his father, they've all fought about this. So they're very, I think, the other side, the people who are uh, heading full steam towards this dystopian agenda are partially doing so because they believe they've done all of the math, they've done all of their homework, Mm. and they know that this is the future that will be better for you humanity for all of these other reasons where we the normal human beings who don't know about this agenda and the the people who are oblivious to this creation of this sort of imaginative world of the future um that's really looks horrible to us um we're awakened to it awakening to it for the first time yeah and we what we want in our lives are just to be happy mm. be around our children love our friends friends have abilities to have a a party and a gathering every now and again you know we want to live most the majority of the world want to live simple lives based upon love of the people who are close to them culture what they love to do music books you know etc you know they, mm. they they love they they want these simple things. freedom yeah and it sounds like a simple thing but th- these ideas of how to make society suit the elite in the future and this is really what it's about. It's not about the society f- being designed to suit people who want to just have a family life and want freedom and want love. This is designed by people who say, in the future, all of this stuff's going to happen. How do we end up on the top of the pile? How do we end up at the top of the right. hierarchy? How do we keep in control? How do our kids keep controlling the mass of population? And there's uh, been a big effort over the past and you could say it's probably about 100 to 150 years of work has gone into this by multiple generations of the same families by many friends many statesmen uh, many academics many scientists and writers who have all kind of given a little bit of their um, flavor to this idea of what the elites see in the future and for us it just seems like a horrific nightmare for them it seems obvious and it seems like the only way to go and it's the path they're on not many people can stop a juggernaut no uh no it's it's a it's a huge oil tanker to turn around a couple of comments before we move on you're already into the material (laughs) i have one more (laughs) positive uh, focused question before we go to the dirty stuff but uh, let me just say about these networks um you're right many people think they're evil yes there are for sure psychopaths among these transhumanists but um yeah, it's a problem of ideas. They are completely brainwashed by this ideology. This re- It's a religion, actually. And it's mm-hmm. it's bordering over to other stuff like Malthusianism and yeah, materialism. It's like a, a, a many polluted thought patterns have converged together. And today, we're waking up to it, like you say, because it's become so overt now. Yep. It's not just a dream among certain elites. People feel it in their own body. So we call it, uh, yeah, we call it corporatism. We call it uh, transhumanism. We call it uh, globalism. Uh, like we have a saying in Norwegian, our beloved child has many names. I think that's <laughs> uh, true also for despised children. But back to the positive question. We were on Wales before you took us deep down the rabbit mm-hmm. hole. Um, I was just wondering, South of Wales, then, if it's not 
Hey, on why? What about Port Marion, which is featured in this in my favorite TV series, which is already in the sixties depicted, yeah. not as early as uh, Wells and those guys, but already in the seventies, it was a prophetic goddamn series. Yeah. Is that close to where you're from? No, no, that's north. <laughs> that's north of the country. I, I'm I'm pretty positive Port Marion is uh, northwest and is um, oh, okay. It is Wales, like I say, Britain's diverse. Wales itself is diverse. It has um, five separate sort of like ethnic groups. Uh, people all see themselves as one Wales because it's classed as one country. But there's actually five separate, uh, you could say, uh, genetic heliotype, uh, I think is what they call it uh, in, in their words. Within Wales, there's North Wales, wow. which where this came from. I come from South Wales, which is really South East Wales. Um, and then you have South West Wales, which has like um, South Pembrokeshire and North Pembrokeshire. Now, both of those are genetically different people, hmm. uh, along with South Wales being genetically different, as long with North Wales. And where you were on Hay and Wye before is where the the Marsha lands, so yeah. the Marsha lords historically lived. And they're a separate group of people again these are really i once upon a time they would have been called celtic that mm. that that sort of idea of celtic is it, it seems to be a concerted effort to wipe the word celtic out of existence oh. and and say that oh celts won one the celts weren't one thing or celts didn't really exist um that's another agenda to homogenize groups celts who has been from China to I mean that's yeah that's a tribe that's been everywhere. Well yeah and now they want to say it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah and um and you can actually go all the way back to uh the start of uh Celtic culture um and the Celtic line seems to be in Austria um and uh, Celts once took Rome you know they once yeah. actually took Rome oh amazing look, look in, in Istanbul there's a area called Galata that literally means Celts. Yes. There's still uh, gingers being born there mm -hmm. because of the bloodline being left there. Celts have been everywhere, man. Yeah, and, and we, we loved to sail around the place as well. So, I mean... I, yeah, you, there's, you... there's actually those who, who think you've been in America even before the Vikings. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, they found the Indian tribe, yep. uh, Native American tribe, uh, as they like to... They, like, they change these terms. You know, I find a, a lot of it is hard to keep up with nowadays how much <laughs> they change these terms right. um but the, when you actually investigate them the terms themselves are like uh, again homogenous term to describe a group of people that the the people in power were not were mm. separate from so the our history and the history of a lot of the um ethnic tribes of the uk have been slowly wiped out and now you're hearing a different sort of tone towards it saying oh Welsh is different than Celtic and and but we can we can trace our our um history back we know where we come from mm. and a, a lot of this is what we're talking here is these are people who definitely um had their own land 1500 years ago in separate places um and it was a really diverse cultural group you know it wasn't just one thing that sometimes gets mixed up with oh it's not 
not a real people. It's not a real race. No, mm. it's not. It's it's kind of a mix of cultures from a load of different tribes. And that's where, even within the art, in Celtic art, what you see is a lot of crossing over constantly, like things looping over each other. And and and, and uh, it was about connection, communication with the tribes next door. It was about understanding how your similarities uh, are enough to keep you together within uh, sort of a cultural um, uh, a group that will make you not war against each other. So there was a lot about uh, Celtic life was about living in peace and living in peace uh, with loads of different ethnic groups. Yeah. So the Celtic people did take on board people. I, I, this is where one, where, I, I mean, people say about probably about all of the countries on earth to some extent, but Welsh people are extremely friendly, extremely welcoming. You find that with a lot of the people like Irish people, the same, a lot of people who came from that background. Mm extremely kind extremely welcoming people and i think that comes from years of having to make love not war yeah unfortunately you can't say the same about the scots <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> too much norse blood damn those scots <laughs> no and the scots have two separate lineages as well picts. they they've got like yeah the picts which is uh, of north uh eastern mainly scotland and then this very uh diverse um group that's as West Scotland, but also Northern Ireland, they actually share the same background, the same genetics. Yeah, but but you can't you can't suppress the the Viking blood. Scots no, are no. Uh, because after the um, crazy Normanners, which were also Viking descendants, or after they ravaged and raped uh, south of uh, UK. The Norse people were exterminated, but many fled to the north. So today, the highest percentage of Norse uh, heritage, genetically speaking, at least, uh, of course, culturally, is very wiped out. But it is in Scotland. Yeah. I want to say, while we're on this tangent, it's fun. Before we go to the real stuff, I also want to say about, to substantiate what you just said about the Celts and the Irish famously being friendly and peaceful and it's true because even back in the medieval ages, you know, the Catholic Church is well known for having instigated all these extermination campaigns against minorities left and right. And uh, did you know that? And I'm going to interview a chap, a Norwegian researcher about this. The Norway, Scandinavia, who was one of the last to be Christianed. We were not, not Christian by the Catholics like we've been taught in school. We were Christian by the Celtic Church. And <laughs> the Celtic Church was, in fact, we were the last remnant of the Celtic Church because that was crushed by the Catholics. Yep. And if you go back to the history and you see the ban bulls uh, that the popes issued, you'll see that they were threatening Norway up to 100 years after they crushed the Celtic Church. Said, you have mm -hmm. to come into the fold. You have to come into the fold. Otherwise, we'll do with you like we did with the others. Yep. Of course, we yielded eventually, but the... Fun uh, for the Catholics only lasted hundred years because then the Reformation came and we threw them out. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. <laughs> but back to the point. Yeah, <laughs> just one more thing about the Celtic Church. The Celtic Church is so special because they said, "No, no, we have our own lineage. We were founded by Jesus when he came with uh, his uncle on trade 
in other words, before the crucifixion, all that. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter if it's a literal true or if it's just a myth. The point is they had that identification. And in their lore, were lots of druidism. And there was lots of stuff from Egypt, ancient Egypt I'm talking about, like sacred geometry and stuff. Yeah. And that's, I think, why they managed to get our, us heathens up here on board, because there were similarities in terms of the mm-hmm. or in terms of the spiritual practices. Whereas the Catholic Church compared to the Norse religion was like day and night. Yep. So I think I think that's uh, why, because the, uh, the Celtic Church was so independent. I do think as well that the, the Celtic Church was um, it, it was a lot of art attached to it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, artwork and clothing was really popular and was was exported around. I mean, you you find Celtic crosses and Celtic jewelry um, scattered all a, around Europe. But also, I, I mean, there's a real point of history where you're talking about the the Norsemen, you're talking about those pesky Vikings coming across. <laughs> well, they they. They raided a lot of the north of uh, Britain, the north of England, the northeast of England, of course. And at the same time, you had a lot of the Celts who were living over quite far over to the west. Iceland? Uh, In parts of, well, in in UK. So Mm. um, a lot in Wales, the Cornish people and the the Devonian people um, were kind of like down here in the southwest. Uh, North Wales at that time was um, anything that that was basically what the north of England is now. That was originally called North Wales back then. And you had a lot of rain. You had a lot of fighting backwards and forwards, kind of like uh, the, the, the Vikings trying to take land and sometimes succeed. It. Um, but the Vikings were also, uh, and uh, Danes in general, were located around Dublin quite a lot. Mm. And there was some sort, there seemed to be some sort of uh, what we would call Cree, some sort of like, you know, no one's going to fight each other uh, around this area right. because we're, we're all going to the trading capital, which was Dublin at the time of that area. Um, so I think there was a, a lot less raids on the West, even though there were some coastal raids. But what happened eventually, of course, once the Romans got pushed out of Britain, they had built the Watling Street, uh, which went from the southeast of England all the way up to the um, northeast of Wales and kind of divided the country into two. And when they left, a lot of these uh, Viking blood, Saxon types, uh, they all came down to one side and the Celts all came up from the other side. And where you have Watling Street, uh, you can see that a lot of the genetics kind of like uh wow. they they stop one side of the watling street would be all danish and viking heritage and the other <laughs> side of the watling street would all be all celtic heritage and along the watling street you have places like um uh Atherstone, which is just outside leicestershire and they're extremely they got all of these games from the past like right. they do this uh ball game where they just throw the ball down the street and i think it used to be some form of head or something along those lines <laughs> And everybody basically, it's like an early form of football. Everybody in the town just goes for this one ball and it becomes like a melee where they're trying to get, the the team are trying to get this ball down um, the the Watling Street uh, towards, uh, up towards uh, the exit. But it was, a lot of this was about the two, these two separate distinct entities, these two separate ethnic Mm. groups, the the Northern Saxons, Vikings, whatever you'd like to call them, and the Celtic. Uh, kind of like ended up either side of the Watling Street, but friendly. 
uh, which is amazing. And then, of course, everybody knows uh, the French came in from the southeast and took everything. And now, yeah, the Normans. Yeah, and now, now those who came from uh, Normandy and North France and Brest and places like that, they still genetically own only the southeast of England. So mm. it's quite a lot of it, but it's only the southeast of England. And and that's genetically. They spread their genes that far. But if you go as far up to Leeds um, and places like this where you can feel there are different people straight away as soon as you talk to them, mm. um, you, you discover that the, the places now where you see that, uh, up in Humberside and the likes, um, they, they all had... Uh, th- that's basically where the genetics stop. So all of the rest of the genetics is still northern genetics, and any genetics that goes into that from any other place gets caught swamped and disappears <laughs> over time. And it's still the same as it was 1,500 years ago. You put a map of Britain 1,500 years ago over a genetic map of Britain now, and you discover that the, the pieces have not changed basically you've got i I say that uh, since 1066 um uh, since the norman invasion and since the taking of europe so it's a little bit less than that now probably 800 years but but basically the 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 um the pieces are all in the same place so the people at the Elmet, as they used to be called are located were located exactly where leeds are is now um and they're very different people the north humbers exactly where humberside are now is now the lanks uh exactly where lancashire are now none of these are from norman heritage none of these share the genetics mm. of the the southeast of england that rules the whole of the uk and decides what everybody does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, two comments to that. First off, researchers have found out that there was a parallel religion practiced between the Christians and the Vikings for at least 200 years up onto the 1200s, at least. Mm-hmm. Maybe as late as the 1300s. I think the Black Plague kind of finished off the last remnants of the Norse paganism. And that couldn't have happened if they were in uh, enmity with each other. So there was obviously some kind of mutual respect between the Vikings communities and the local mm-hmm. Celts. But um, you say... Uh, the new genes get swamped up in the pool. Well, it's true for everyone except the so-called dark Irish man. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> Not everybody knows about that uh, phenomenon, but it's a funny little legend or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, well, there's a lot of uh, little points. Now, so, some people may say, and more religious among us may say, a lot of the tri- the Celtic tribes, uh, the Norse tribes, were all potentially the lost tribes of Israel. Yeah. That they could be one of the seven, uh, or I think it was seven, uh, tribes of Israel that disappeared from history. No, it was 12. Oh, it's 12. Sorry, sorry. But that, yeah, that yeah. there would be, you know, that those, those disappeared from history. Where could they possibly have gone? And it does make sense that groups will go and settle in an area and then be successful or not. Um, but I do I do think that we, we look at everything very simplistically. Mm. We, we tend to try and make sense of it with the information we got. And we know that we're missing lots of information because one thing that happens when a new empire comes in 
is they like to destroy all yeah. of the yeah. previous information. And this is something that we're seeing now. Yeah, that's a perfect segue, Johnny. Uh, because uh, now we're going to talk about unpleasant matters. And um, it's uh, I, I found it very interesting in one of your articles about... Uh, we, we're basically discussing a man today. Uh, but uh, of course, we can't discuss the man without uh, discussing context. And one of the contexts I want you to touch upon, of course, is the Nazi thing. Because we've been uh, focusing a little on, on Nazi influence still echoing today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, there's a tons of other stuff, like, for example, what we discussed before we started here with the recent scandal. There's so much. But uh, let's have a main focus on the man. And yeah. Klaus Schwab, uh, I've seen your articles on Klaus Schwab. You have several, actually. So mm-hmm. I think we'll muse around there. I think that's a, a never-ending, what you say in English, a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all of that. I mean, I'm, this is what you look for as a journalist. You look for things that, that will just keep giving you more and more revelations, more and more information. And, and it is, is I'm currently finishing one which is propelled by this, but not about Klaus Schwab specifically, but about another one of Kissinger's protégés. So right. who was also like trained up in Harvard at the same time. Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, in your article, you I think you call him Uncle Claus. <laughs> and I think that's significant because uh, they are being portrayed as harmless, serious people. Like this is just, yeah, like this is like our uncle. Yeah, yeah. But of course, anybody with eyes to see and ears to hear find him extremely creepy. And, uh, and, and that's um, that can actually be substantiated, right? Yeah, well, uh, we're talking about Klaus Martin Schwab, who was, of course, born 1938 in Ravensburg, Germany, and was an extremely interesting, uh, like, born into a, a, a to a very interesting man who had done something very specific, and. It, he would like eventually Klaus Klaus's journey would lead him to become one of the most powerful men in the world, and to keep uh, to to create a backstory to create the essence of who you are to the public is really important for these elites because they've got to uh, create that not only to draw other people in maybe business leaders or leaders of government who want to to find a friendly uncle figure who's working up above who they can connect with and Klaus Schwab is very much that's how he's he's painted himself as a man who's there to connect political enemies yeah. uh, under the policy, like policies and business and enterprise and 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 be a, that friendly man who can bring you all together and stop the arguments. And every time he's had an opportunity to do that, um, you, you see how he was with Nelson Mandela. He's taken that opportunity really, you know, forcefully. He's been really, it's been really important to him to show that, that sort of of image out to the world, shine this image of virtue, of uh, caring about people, of having your best interests at heart. And it's not 
it's not a mistake. It's not a, a coincidence that it's like that. It's done for a specific reason and has been done over years and really was what first led me to start investigating the man because um, my partner is a, a, a girl called uh, Whitney Webb who's a, a very good journalist in her own right. Very good. Better, better than me. Full stop. I was, I was planning to reveal that during this interview. My listeners know who she is for sure yeah good and uh, uh that's that's quite a feat actually to be married to her <laughs> yeah well <laughs> we, they we... will understand why when i hear you now but let me also just say that um when you talk about uh, this uh, pr campaign uh, i've mentioned in another show we had that bill gates has spent millions on his image and mm -hmm. they don't invest all these money for nothing for uh, it's so important to them that uh, they have this that they control the media you know when you uh, have a certain amount of money like when you we're talking these multi-billionaires you have more money than you can actually spend mm -hmm. even if you want to buy like three yachts a day you can try to spend all that money in your lifetime and you can't do it what do they need this money for they need this money for one thing and that is that it buys control. Most normal people, when they have so much money that they don't have a care in the world, that's when they, you know, uh, let me retire to a Pacific island. No, no, not these guys. They want more because all the <clears throat> extra money they get above what they need just to be uh, an elite mm -hmm. is used to gain control. It's enough money to buy all the politicians in countries where politicians are for sale, like the Banana Republic, known as the United States of America. And it, of course, buys the press. So they own the, and of course, they own the corporation. So it is about full power. And okay, sorry to Virginia, continue. No, that's, uh, that's, uh, a lot of people don't understand that, that, you know, how rich works. People think, oh, uh, but as soon as I get rich enough, I wouldn't do that. Or why would mm. they want to do? They must be psychologically disturbed. But these, these plans that they have are so expensive to create that all of the money in the world right now, all of the crypto, all of the assets will not be enough to make it they got to create keep creating the wealth and taking it for their agenda mm. uh to be able a lot like the mining if we look at resources they, they will say to you oh you look how terrible work what you've done to the planet and they'll make us the normal people feel guilty about driving a car driving our kids to school or something along those lines you know mm. um where in fact if they want their agenda to be created and bill gates has said this himself that every single bit of lithium out there needs to be mined for their electric vehicles and their electric future every single bit of resource on this planet needs to be mined to fit their agenda mm. and they're doing their agenda hidden behind a blanket of environmentalism mm. the same people who hide behind uh some sort of like image are always the people who are doing the opposite to what that image portrays mm. and now that is very important when it comes down to seeing how they they intend uh to create this future and it basically you know and how they intend to push us off land claim that there's not enough land and we've polluted everything already while at the same time they take the land we're no longer custodians of the land we're not on the land we can no longer protect the land and then they can use the land for whatever they want to do 
So their version of environmentalism leads to them destroying the land and the water sources, polluting uh, constantly. Yet they'll get there by telling it, by guilt, making everybody feel guilty uh, that we're the ones who are doing all that. But they're planning on doing it. Their version is of the world. I've said this in a documentary recently. Is like the the sea is brown, the sky is dark, and you, you know we don't have anything. We don't have. We own nothing and this is one of the things that really led me to look because like i was saying whitney said to me we were sitting around it was uh maybe december 2020 i think uh we were sitting around a coffee table in uh chile it was a lovely it'd been a lovely day and uh she said listen why you why you do all of the family stuff you go through family histories why why don't we try and work out who klaus schwab is because look at there's only the image of him. His Wikipedia page was tiny compared to most people. He's done some of the most interesting and important things in history. And so why would they be presenting him as he, even you know even even articles about him are careful. Even he is really careful about how he says about his past, what he says about his past. And we we become really suspicious already that he was obviously there was some else in the background there but Whitney was like you know spend six weeks just concentrating completely on this on this one question who is Klaus Schwab's parents because mm. it was almost impossible to see and to find and for it I had to spend nearly all of that time looking literally for every single person who was called Schwab in every single region I could possibly find, in every single different, uh, going through each of them and following their lines forward rather than following the line backwards. Because when you can't follow the line backwards, there's no point in following the line backwards. It's not going to get you anywhere. So following the line forwards, looking for clues. I'd also just dealt with a lady who... I, I had reported on her business activities, her dealing with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, um, uh, dystopian companies that she was creating. And I, I discovered that she, she had started to put out fake web put up fake websites her people because she had loads of people working she's a billionaire mm -hmm. she's really rich lady um she had put up loads of websites to confuse me on who her father was and give me false names and false details and false information and i saw these things popping up about all over the place about this lady um who's called nicole Yunkerman. Uh, also, Countess Brachetti Peretti now married to the, one of the heads of API Oil in Italy. And I, I followed this lady's activity. I tried to understand who her parents were, and I just discovered that it was going to be impossible. So by the time I got around to trying to find out who Klaus Schwab was, I thought, well, I'm just going to have to go the long way. And I did that. I went through every Schwab I could possibly find. And eventually, I came across there was clues to what Klaus Schwab says. He even mentioned his father's name at one point, but it was hard to even find that article in in the because so much had been deleted mm. so much had been deleted what i found was just empty holes 404 pages nothing in the archives you know this was like nothing i'd seen before i had done i had gone through bill gates family history all the way back 700 years i'd gone through multiple people i'd gone through like uh, Theresa may's family history and stuff and i'd looked at all these people who were really interested in doing really interesting things or really doing really malevolent things and i was going through their history and discovered that there was 
more and more to be found through their ancestors because this trait, this special trait of uh, being negative to the rest of mankind for your own gain and benefit repeats genetically in family lines. You can't stop it. Not everybody. Like, someone can have eight children and only one of them will be like that. You know, only one yeah. of them will be like that, but that one will be, will seek power, will mm. gain power, mm. will become powerful, mm. will use that power in a malevolent way, just like their father did uh, or their mother did before. And it seems to be a reoccurring cycle. And and this is something that when you research ancestry, cycles is what you're looking for. And eventually, um, I found uh, a Wilhelm Gottfried uh, Schwab. I think that's uh, his grandfather's name, Klaus Schwab's grandfather's name. Um, uh, it, it, there's a, a, another name in there. I can't remember what it is. Uh, but he was he was a guy who, like, from I, I could go back to about 1874 um, when he was born. He was an interesting guy. He's part of the reason why um, Klaus Schwab was not able to gain Swiss citizenship because Klaus Schwab tried to gain Swiss citizenship on two occasions, once via his father in the 50s and once later on in the 90s and was refused both times. Is that to do with taxes, do you think? Uh, no, it's to do with his 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 grandfather was called Gottfried Schwab. That's what they called him. That's what he was known as. And that was because uh, his first name was Jacob. So Jacob Wilhelm Gottfried Schwab. Jacob was a very Jewish name. Mm. And because of that, I think he left that behind and started going by the much more German Gottfried Schwab um, so that, that, that he could, because the area he was in, um, that he was born in, had only a, lifted a ban on Jews entering into the region just like 30 years before I think it is mm. so he was in a, a, a place in Germany that was historically extremely anti-Semitic they had blood libels they dragged out they accused uh, Jewish people who lived there of um, sacrificing babies in blood rituals oh, that's and yeah, and then they they drag. I, I mean, it happened all over the region, all over the all around where Klaus Schwab was brought up was extremely anti-Semitic. So I think I think it was that reason. But then, um, basically, Gottfried Schwab moved, fell in love with a woman in Switzerland, went to Switzerland. But at the time, he had to renounce German citizenship to be able to move to Switzerland. He moved to Switzerland, didn't apply to be a, a citizen there, and then moved back to Germany and got his German citizenship citizenship back eventually um with Klaus Schwab's father when he Klaus Schwab's father was born so Klaus Schwab's father was born I think he was uh 1898 Eugen Schwab uh, Eugen eugenics I mean it's just <laughs> it's you can't you just cannot make it up it's just unbelievable yeah. and Eugen was back to be brought up in Germany so Eugen lived I I don't I you know I I was unable to find out what Gottfried Schwab did but I get a feeling that he worked for the same company that Eugene worked for it was just down at a lower level I, I came across some things that suggested that but I was never able to work out what his grandfather did but 
Klaus Schwab's father. Hang on, which company was that? Well, this is Klaus Schwab's father. Father became managing director of Escher Weiss, and Escher Weiss had been set up by Walter Zuppinger um, in late eighteen forties, eighteen fifty, I think, around that time. And originally, it had been making small machinery parts. For, I mean, the Industrial Revolution was kicking off, so factories were popping up all over the place. And Walter Zuppinger. Um, uh, created Escher Weiss in Switzerland, but then made a branch in Ravensburg uh, in Germany as well. And soon, the uh, within 40 years, the Ravensburg um, uh, factory uh, of Escher Weiss was making large turbines for ships, for hydroelectric dam projects, and for other things. So it was starting to make extremely big uh, machinery that was really hard to uh, source anywhere in the world so it become um it, it got to the point that by the time uh, uh Eugen Schwab was in charge of the Escherweiss factory in Ravensburg he was managing director of the factory by that time it was the biggest employer in Ravensburg um i think something like half of the population was employed by the one factory which was a, a sprawling fa- factory and um you Eugen Schwab married before um, he married Klaus Schwab's mother, who was uh, Rika Eprecht, he married another woman who was a bit of a good time girl. She got married three times. So I, 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 I'm <laughs> saying that she was a, a bit of a good time girl, in my opinion. But she was also apparently a nice woman. She was also Jewish. Uh, she would... Uh, Hang on, when, when was this? This must have been before the 30s. This was in the 20s. 20s, yes. Yeah, this yes. was in the 20s. So she, he married a Jewish woman. It, the, the relationship broke down. I think they still remained fairly friendly, even though he remained working in Germany during the war. She fled. She went to... Uh, I think she, she arrived in New York and, and uh, said her nationality was Hebrew. So she was uh, obviously denouncing like lots of uh, Jewish people were at the time denouncing in their German citizenship on arrival mm. to their, their places they chose to f- flee to and, and live in exile. In. She had a wit to flee in time. Kudos to her. Yeah, she did. But it was she fled in 1938. It was like right oh, at the wow. I, I think it was like it was like right at the end. She was she had stayed there. He must have helped. He must have helped her. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so because it wasn't too much animosity. In actual fact, in the the fifties, uh, um, uh, Eugen and Arika and and Klaus Schwab and Urs Weiner Schwab would apply for visas to go visit them in Brazil. Because by the fifties, uh, this his former wife, his uh, previous wife, was living in Brazil with her son, Klaus Schwab's uh, stepbrother. Oh, not not half brother. Um, uh, yeah, half, half. Um, yeah, half brother. Sorry, half brother. Mm, I meant to yeah. say half brother. You're, you're completely right. It, there's also a couple other members of Klaus Schwab's family that are in the background there, like half me- half family, because I think she did have some. Um, she did have a little girl as well. Uh, they may have had a little girl as well, because I saw I saw visa documents uh, for her. Um, but still. Uh, Klaus Schwab's father, Eugen, and his wife, Erika, got married in, I think it was 1936. And they were, they were by this point, um, you know, very stable in Ravensburg. And Ravensburg was going to become a very safe place during the war because it got special dispensation, um, from the Allies not to be bombed all wow. through World War II. 
but the Red Cross said they were going to use it as a base for the Swiss Red Cross said they were going to use it as a base um, for uh, the humanitarian efforts. Um, in actual fact, uh, Escher Weiss uh, Ravensburg branch was producing massively important parts to the war effort. They were producing parts for fighter planes, parts for submarines. Of course, the U-boat. Everybody knows about the German reliance on U-boats when it comes down to the Navy. Uh, they were producing atomic bomb casing and large hydro uh, large turbines that were going to be used uh, in the production heavy uh, using heavy water uh, while you enriching uranium so to enrich uranium you use heavy water it's a natural way of u- enriching uranium you need massive enormous turbines to do this um and the only place that that made those sort of uh turbines that were on the uh, um axis the side of the axis of of germany and their friends um was the ravensburg branch of escher weiss who were the managing director all through the war uh also going home and bringing up a young klaus schwab who was born the year before the war started was right uh, that means that his father was very important first of all i think the nazis let them the Red Cross have that thing so that their production facilities would be untouched by the Allies. But yep. this means that Albert Speer probably knew his father then because uh, this is such a crucial thing yeah. for the war effort. And and don't forget to touch upon um, his mother too. We never got around to her. But go on. Yeah, well, is Klaus Schwab's mother? I I think she looks almost identical to him. To be perfectly honest, he, you know he's got his mother's face very much. He looks like he looks like his mother. <laughs> Boys tend to do. I that. think she was a very strong woman who was a very family orientated woman. I didn't. I I I I did look a little bit down the family line. There's loads of rumors. Loads of people want to put that. Oh, the first day there, there was people who were saying his father was. Um, um, this other Schwab, um, who's from the north of Germany, has no connection with with the area or the region, uh, has not been listed down as Klaus Schwab's father ever, where Eugene Schwab has. But they wanted to say it because he's like, oh, he, he was married to a Rothschild. Mm. And they say the same about his mother. Oh, his mother was married to a Rothschild, probably. And, you know, so the people want to fit it into this narrative, yeah. this bigger narrative yeah. that's sort of built up. But the, the truth is, his mother seems to be um the person who gave the house stability and and rules while his father was the one that Klaus Schwab idolized and looked up to and was this man who was really important during the German war effort and they 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 what rumor did get to me that someone said they they, they had seen a document showing that Eugen Schwab had been post-war after world war ii had been uh interrogated by the americans and i wouldn't be surprised if that was so because of course spear albert spear was um at, at the end of the war being interrogated by americans uh one of them being john kenneth galbraith who we'll get to later because he is one of the uh people who uh saw 
Klaus Schwab is their protege and helped to create the World Economic Forum, mm. which is extremely interesting. That all yeah. of these connections. I mean, these were really important times, really important people. Yet the Red Cross, I, partially, it was um, it was to make sure that they they were not their factory was, remained untouched. Um, but the, the one of the things that you have to understand about uh, the, this era is that it ends. They don't. They are not successful in their enriching uranium and creating the uh, atomic bomb. A lot of people, especially up in your part of the world, will talk about the efforts to try and stop yeah, them enriching to. uranium because that was in your neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah. that was in that was in your area, of course. In in I think it was Norway. Itself. My grandfather was in was involved in um, in the resistance, and they, they, yes, they managed to to stop the the heavy water. Yeah, but but the thing is about it is that they were so far. I I think that a lot of that, and I don't want to I don't want to annoy any Scandinavians and Norwegians up there <laughs> with this. But I think a lot of that has been like propaganda made up by the movies. Because in if you investigate the facilities they had up there to do this, mm -hmm. they were sprawling. They had loads of uh, people working on different projects that were basically coming to the same would reach the same ends and not all of it was ever affected even allied bombing and raids couldn't really touch what they were doing and yeah there was a couple of important moments um but i think that they had chosen to go the long route to develop uh nuclear weapons and atomic bomb um and and that was what really got them in the end is that it didn't matter if people raided them or bombed them they weren't going to get there first with the technique they were using no and they didn't put all their eggs in one basket we know that they were successful uh, there's new research like carter heydrich we had him on our show uh, has proven that they actually managed to reach it in the 12th hour. But by then it was too late. Bormann was negotiating yeah. uh, uh, a trade. You know, you, we, we give you this and uh, yeah. <clears throat> we can only speculate what the Germans got back. But one of the main, uh, most plausible uh, explanation is that Bormann was let go with the billions and the 750 corporations. It, it's... It's something you see throughout um, the race to uh, nuclear warfare, uh, to, to having the nuclear bomb, and then uh, the the ideas behind nuclear warfare afterwards. This development that people, like countries, uh, will invest a lot of time and will be often encouraged by bigger powers later on to invest time in trying to research this technology in one way because it'll take them longer and that suits the major powers um mm. but there was also uh, as we'll also hear later and see later there was also a change in the idea of who should have nuclear bombs because at this point we're talking about in history it was either one or the other you know right the the, the it was either going to be the axis or the allies and that was very simplistic but once the war was over it was no longer Axis powers versus the Allies. It was loads of different countries versus each other. It was kind of like it 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 created, it spawned a load of um, new problems. But later on, you'd have China um, uh, gaining uh, the technology. You'd have India and Pakistan trying to compete to get it. You'll have South Africa trying to get it. You'll Israel. have other countries. 
Yeah. So 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 you've got you've got like this this race all around the world rather than just two powers, which was very simplified version. And uh, Klaus Schwab really ends up in the center with the people uh, or ends up being affected heavily in his uh, development and his ideology by the people who were at the center of this debate in America. Because the next step, of course, like I say, it got to the end of of the one thing I found out recently that was really interesting is that the Americans, they wanted to, when they got to the, they won the race to the bomb. They wanted... Well, well, you know, the Manhattan Project didn't succeed until uh, Operation Paperclip was in, in move. So this was uh, yeah. there was this specific U-boat who had with it not just scientists, but also the Nazi research. And suddenly, bam, yeah. Manhattan Project succeeded. But that's an, uh, a tangent. Go on. Indeed. In, 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 but, but there was a point where they the Americans, once they decided, okay, we're going to test out these uh, the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yeah. they went to a briefing with a load of other Western officials, um, and the British said, no, no, let's just firebomb them. Let's just use like a form of napalm mm. because all of the houses in Japan and in in Tokyo, the majority of them, apart from the center, combustible, yeah, yeah. is it was all made of wood and paper, mm. so we could burn everybody alive. And this was how that idea would would have caused so much casualties when they estimate how many casualties that I, that idea that the British were pushing would have caused so much casualty, uh, so many casualties that it actually became kinder idea. <laughs> to use atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Again, they get stuck between these two, this paradigm where you've got two choices. Mm. And this is what this is what the people in power do all of the time. Lesser of two evil, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're constantly have the two uh, being led to one or the other, and neither of them are going to be your saviour. Both of them are going to see uh, horrendous activities. Mm. Um, so, so I, I mean, at this point, the reason why I was able to find who Eugene Schwab was, find that he was managing the Escher Vice Factory, find all of this information, was one solid concrete piece of evidence, um, which was when Eugene Schwab was trying to get Swiss citizenship back for himself. Um, he uh, basically went to court, and the court records survived, and it named Klaus Martin Schwab and Urs Reiner Schwab as children of Eugen mm. Schwab and Erika Brecht. So uh, at that point, you know, I had I had researched all through all of these family lines. I had followed this. I was still like, you know, I had little other bits of evidence that 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 I said I feel confident with it. But that was the final piece of brilliant proof that that this is Klaus Schwab's family. Uh, that document was from the 1950s. So conspiratorially, they would have had to think about that a long time before to, to kind of like cut you off. Um, it was a very, it, 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 it meant that I was able to then say, okay, Klaus Martin Schwab was the son of Eugen Schwab. Let's find out more about their relationship. Um, uh, and I ended uh, the first article on really the start of the World Economic Forum. 
and it took me a year to get to the next article because the first article was all about Klaus Schwab's family, his father, and what he had done with the Nazis. Also covers the fact that Klaus Schwab went to work for Escher Weiss, um, which w- w- to to help with a merger between them and Schultz AG and another couple of companies. And while there, uh, Schulze AG, uh, Schulze Escher Weiss, as it was, um, were, 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 uh, he was the second in charge and he was, uh, basically helping, uh, sell, uh, atomic weapon, nuclear weapons technology from Escher Weiss to the South African, illegal South African apartheid regime. Sorry, the apartheid regime in South Africa that was illegally searching for their own nuclear weapons program mm. they needed certain technologies so he kind of did what his father did he helped another fascist regime to try and gain nuclear technology and that was shocking for me you know that that ended the last article and i thought I, I you know i looked at the beginning of the world economic forum i looked at uh, limits to growth and club of rome and their speech on the third davos and i was like that that's that's like a really good article that explains a lot. It is packed with evidence, packed yeah. with links. Yeah. I feel really confident. But I've got these questions and I don't even I didn't even know by then what the questions were. It was just things <laughs> that didn't sit right with me. Mm. I went from Klaus Martin Schwab, his father, he goes to the company, he does basically the same thing, and then he's uh goes off and he he um he makes the World Economic Forum. And I just felt there was something missing in between the point where um he uh he leaves Harvard and he goes to the World Economic Forum. Well, and he creates the World How- Wait a minute. So his father studied in Harvard, or are you meaning Klaus Schwab studied in Harvard? That's- no, Klaus Schwab. Sure, Klaus. Because because his father actually, I believe, I am I am being able to confirm this, but I, I believe because I I found uh, his name down there. Um, studied at one of the more more uh, upper class Ravensburg universities, where right. lots of really powerful and rich people attend uh, a really really famous school. So I think that's how he got his connections in his place. He was maybe a poor German, a relatively poor German, next to the people he was in university with, but a fantastically clever man. And when was the official founding date of WEF? And the, the official founding date was 1971 when they had their first conference. Okay. But uh, th- this we will we will discuss. Mm. This we will discuss <laughs> because in between Eugene Schwab, really interesting guy. Uh, obviously, Klaus got his sort of brain, his y- use logical use of, of thinking. I always, I I kind of got to know the people of Ravensburg and that area of Germany quite well in my my studies of their their culture and their history uh in particular and i i got to feel that the people who were from there schwabian people because they're from uber schwabia that's where the name schwab comes from people of schwab uh, lots of people used to take adopt that name like lots of jewish people when they moved to the region didn't want to be known as having mm. a jewish last name so would take the name schwab so there was lots of schwabs around so, so we're talking schwabia yeah schwabia as in new Schwab, Neue Schwabia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Neue Schwabia, um, 
we're in Uberschwabia, so Upper Schwabia. Mm. Um, and and this place was right on the. I mean, you've got the Swiss Empire, you got the Austrian Empire, you got the Roman Empire, or Italian empires below. You got Lombardies below uh, across the 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 mountainscapes. You've got the the different houses, German houses, rich, powerful German houses all around you. And this little area where um was all about trade it was all about crossing these barriers so hitler's financiers must have been present there too yeah i I would i would think that a lot because it it was a very it was a place for the elites krupp tyson yeah and a lot of the there's a a school there that all of the princes like prince philip had gone there in the 30s alongside Mm. the interested people who there's uh eckhart von kunzberg and his granddaughter is laura kunzberg who was the bbc political editor um at one point you know these people have really famous lines of dissent as well of uh, in in positions where you say are they are they working for the state are they actually working for the elite still because they, they are the elites but eckhart von kunzberg was a guy who also helped create the nhs in the uk so he had a bit of a history in itself lots of famous people um came from this area lots of rich people lots of the elites and i think that the people of swobia we were made rich and the area was made influential and affluent through uh not just not just a hundred years this was hundreds of years of learning to get on with the these all of these warring nations around them so all of these nations around them are constantly trying to kill each other mm. and they got to get permission to go through Schwabin instead of taking that region, which would then mean that these people would have a front line next to their enemies. The, 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 the people, those countries around this region said, oh, let, let's just use them as a kind of crossroads. And they become really good at, uh, uh, basically appeasing warring nations with the idea that they got to be self-preservationist, they got to preserve their own identity, preserve their own culture, and, pres- and preserve their own safety, e- economic and 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 just life. They got to preserve their life by doing things that they might not necessarily um, want to do. Mm. So I think a lot of these people, uh, I think he comes, Klaus Schwab comes from a place where historically the people who have risen to the top are people who are able to give away more than they want. Right. And are, are able to to think above like their own little position and start thinking about all the different positions around them. So I, it's not a surprise that someone like Klaus Schwab, who creates the World Economic Forum, would come from this area. And this area, like I say, a, a, a really good education system. Uh, Klaus, when I w- started researching his childhood, it was like it was sparse. It was there was like a couple of puff piece art uh, bits in puff pieces it was mm. articles where they said something along the lines of um oh and then he went to france and he said to these french young people you know we've had a lot of war but we should get on with each other how about <laughs> you become friends with me and i become friends with you french and german people are not so far uh, uh, apart Un- uncle close strikes again yeah 
uh, Uncle Klaus strikes again. So this is when he's in like his teenage years. He's supposed to be going around being the diplomat, mm. trying to you know make make peace after the war, even though his father w- wanted to basically devastate and wreak hell, hell from above for the Nazis. You know, <laughs> he was quite happy to to be seen as a diplomat at least. Just a quick detail: uh, when you said he applied twice for Swiss uh, citizenship, I I thought you were talking about Klaus. Where are you? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, in a sense, because uh, Eugen Schwab applies for it once, but he's applying for it for him and his whole family. Okay. So in the fifties, I think I think Eugen Schwab was like, oh, maybe maybe we'll still be held to account for me working right, with the Nazis. Right, right. The Israel, the state of Israel has been made. Mm. The the Mossad has been created. They're going around trying to trying to grab people mm. who are ex Nazis. Eugen Schwab has probably got brown pants at this point and he's scared mm. that, that he doesn't so he wanted to get swiss nationality back but why would klaus do it later if not for taxes yeah yeah well klaus later on did the same thing i'm not sure i would think it was so that he could have even more of the persona or yeah it's probably for taxes but even more ah, yeah. neutrality vibe Yeah, yeah, because yeah. association. The mm. you you don't want to be on the stage as the lifetime supreme leader and be German. It, it's just like historically, no. Yeah. Back then, yeah, back then Germans were hated across Europe. Yeah, people don't know that. Yeah, of course, across Europe, across mm. Europe, mm. and it, it you know it it's not across the Atlantic. No. Not across the Atlantic. The Americans watched Europe like a load of cousins playing yeah, yeah. Um, and, and being idiots and were willing to forgive any atrocity uh, by any nation as long as it benefited America in some way. And that's what kind of happens next. Or, or went against the Soviet. Uh, yes. Well, that's definitely what happens next. Uh, but but Klaus, I mean, politics aside, Klaus went to university after he's been this diplomat on the ground already. Um, he does a little bit of work experience in Escher Weiss uh, before it starts the merger and before they ask him back. Um, he but he 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 picks up degree after degree, and after a couple of after say about three years. There's just places giving him degrees, just like honorary degrees here. He's going there for a couple of weeks and he's walking away with a degree. It doesn't make any sense. He's got loads of qualifications. Is this before he's like, is is he still young and not that powerful yet? Yeah, he's still young and not that powerful, but mm. he's walking around like he he's able to do a course in in that everybody else has to spend four years doing in like six months. Then he is connected with something. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, there's a feeling that, and I've seen this multiple times with these characters, they get chosen Mm. and they get all sorts of uh, people, the people in the know who know they've been chosen, know to give them lots of gifts. And those people are usually within academia because academia by this point is a good way to hide your intentions politically. Mm. That's why Kissinger is the head of the School of Government in uh, Harvard. He's, Mm. you know, it's a good place for him to say i am an academic and not mm. not have to be look like he's actually working for the council on foreign relations and for deep state intelligence instead mm. no he's an academic so a lot of uh, you know and this was the start of 
Western intelligence, you know, Eastern intelligence. If you go back to um, uh, Soviet, uh, Soviets, Russia, uh, communism, further back, Lenin, all of that, you know, the intelligentsia in uh, in Russia were, 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 had been going for a long time. The West, it was only after World War II and the OSS had been created, the um, Operation for Special Services or whatever it, it stands for. It was the precursor to really the FBI, mm. uh, the CIA, sorry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, MI5 and MI6 were doing their, their business around at this point. They was This was the start of the intelligence proper modern industrial intelligence gathering methods mm. these people were were entering into a new world they had new techniques they were setting stone and they would get just getting better and better and it wasn't any longer about just gathering info and giving it to the leaders now it was about shaping society Yes, yes, most definitely shaping society and how do you shape society you shape society through f- first thing policy Mm. This is what Klaus Schwab is all about. You know, you go into a company, you want to make that company better, you give it good policies. You want to give it, you want to make money from it, you want to benefit from it, you give it the right kind of policies in the right kind of places, and you will make that happen from the start. It leads. It's like, you know, it's really set set in the scene for the main play. You can't do it unless you, you really have written a story very carefully. And that's what policy does. It allows you to write a story, write a narrative, and and uh, get it. You, it's the point when people are trained. Young people are trained, too. Young people are trained in university to go into government what they trained on they trained on policy how to make policy how to uh, how to uh, uh, negotiate uh, with, with different people who have different types of policy so it become very it, it, you know it, it's not a surprise that i'm going to start talking about a specific university there's certain universities especially in america during this period who are starting to really understand they've got the academic minds there to really understand what makes society tick what makes society work and how to manipulate it how to co-opt it and how to make it so that you know it is yours and no one else can do anything about it that they, they don't even see it happening um and and this was some we, we're going to have to go to where Klaus Schwab went after he got given all of these wonderful European degrees or he got offered to a special course um, and he talks about it himself he says oh, I, I I got uh, I was allowed to sit in at Harvard to the international seminar with Henry Kissinger and he let they let me in even though I couldn't afford it they let me in well he could afford it he could afford it his father <laughs> wasn't wasn't poor he wasn't poor he could afford it and anyway it didn't matter because to be chosen for the international seminar wasn't you walk in and sit in on it he was there for two years what do you mean sit in on a course for two years no you, in the international seminar, I found uh, adverts for it in the Lahore Gazette, Military Gazette, in uh, 1957, 1958, and 1959. Each of those years, they make it completely clear this course is free for those selected, but to be selected, you have to really be the top of your game. 
everything will be paid for your um accommodation will be paid for your food all of all of your necessities are paid for um if you go to internet the international seminar with henry kissinger because henry kissinger's international seminar was about grooming uh the young global leaders ah oh, we, we we see the cradle of the young uh, what do the wf call a young um, yeah the forum of for, for young global leaders yeah. and that's really where it that this is where it's i mean it, i went in my third article i went back to look who funded this who mm. funded this international seminar and it's a, a, it's amazing because in 1967 when klaus schwab leaves this seminar it comes out in harvard uh crimson the harvard's own magazine they have to try and they're trying to beat the new york times and another um uh, uh paper to the 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 story um that's about to come out that shows that cia conduits were funded in Henry Kissinger's international seminar and that between the years um 1960 to 1966 they funded it to a tune of 146,000 which is something like millions today mm. and they don't tell you what the f- original funding cost to set it up and start it for the first 10 years because Kissinger's international seminar which was really Kissinger himself uh commented to his his own one of his own mentors that it, it was actually should be um william yandel elliott's international seminar william uh, yandel elliott was a grandee at harvard he was a a high-ranking member of the council on foreign relations he was also advisor to six different presidents he was an extremely influential man that nobody really knows about um in the world they don't they've never really heard about william yandel elliott but he was one of kissinger's mentors and he it was his idea to set up this international seminar and kissinger henry kissinger had just graduated from harvard uh with a doctorate um and he had written the longest thesis uh thesis thesis oh i can't say that wrong um <laughs> it, <laughs> it, probably thesis to be honest yes. henry kissinger does his work isn't easy to read uh but he had written the, the longest paper in harvard's history at this point um and he was being lauded as the next big thing and he had asked to join the fbi in 1950 and was refused and instead um one of one of the guys uh muck george bundy what a name muck george bundy is his name (laughs) okay Uh, and he he's one of the heads of harvard and he um they always no 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 connection to the other bundy or no, no. Well, I don't know. Actually, I never, I never checked. But McGeorge, who has like two last names, in my opinion, that's a very Scottish name, McGeorge. Yeah. But McGeorge Bundy, uh, he had, he said, no, I'm going to nominate you for the CFR. And so uh, Henry Kissinger went to work for the Council on Foreign Relations. But at the same time, time he was setting up the first. As soon as he left, 1950, he was put in charge of creating the international seminar. And the international seminar at first would take. 50 50 young recruits, global, potential young global leaders 
from around the world to this uh, seminar, which would have three sections and and would comprehensively teach, uh, well, comprehensively find American-aligned potential leaders uh, in business, in government, in policymaking, uh, and other things. And it was really important to do this at this time. The same people who were funding them were people like the Farfield Foundation, uh, the Asian Foundation, and the American Friends of the Middle East. And the American Friends of the Middle East was a CIA conduit. All three of those were CIA conduits. So they were uh, receiving money from the CIA to uh, then dole out uh to to projects and initiatives they were running um and and so the american friends of the middle east was actually set up by a few people one of them being kermit roosevelt one of the lead people he was one of the people who helped found the cia too and run the first two coups in 1952 when uh america couped uh king farouk in egypt um and operation ff which stood for fat fuck uh they (laughs) they couped the king uh, they couped in egypt iran and then a year later 1953, they took down Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran. Yeah. Both of those two uh, coups, the first two coups that the CIA were heading, uh, with the Dulles uh, brothers involved, Alan Dulles being involved in organizing, mm. and John Foster Dulles being involved in uh, funding these courses and making sure that the CIA got all of its funding. Um, a lot of money went into it, it was like over a million in that. that era so it's like 13 million today or something even more than that uh was put into um the coup in iran against mohammed mosaddegh and they succeeded to both of those but what they discovered straight away is that the people they put in power were precarious they they weren't trained up they weren't trustworthy they could turn to the communist side because this had turned into east versus west and they were trying to make sure that any country that they cooed, the reason why they were cooing Iran and Egypt was because there was a risk that they could side with the Soviet Union at some point and that would give, bring the Soviet Union's borders to the uh, to the western borders and there would be clashes of course so they were trying to constantly uh, make sure that they had the Amer- the Western powers had their leaders in charge of cu- countries that were bordering the Soviet Union. Mm. So it was a Cold War dynamic, East versus West. Um, they the, the the reason why they enacted these coups at the start was for exactly those reasons. And the reason the international seminar was set up was because, well, you need to have American aligned young global leaders ready and trained up to go into yeah. positions. Yeah. And so that's what they started to do straight away. I, I think they also cooed in Argentina in 43 yeah. to, to make a safe haven for fleeing uh, Nazis. And I think they were in, but of course, that was the predecessor of CIA. And I think they did a coup in 55 in Argentina. But that's just yeah, yeah. my hunch. Okay, uh, uh, Argent- Argentina's always been a problem for them. But they, yeah, they, they yeah. do seem to make certain countries, they seem to make like these special states that are for certain projects. Yeah. So I think Pakistan is one of those. Exactly. For yeah. the Western, um, especially for the Americans. Mm. It was like this fake, uh, like... Um, 
concern about Pakistani nuclear weapons at one point, when at the same time Kissinger was saying in the press, oh, I don't want Pakistan to have nuclear weapons. At the same time, he was helping Pakistan have nuclear weapons by getting other countries to change their policies to make it easier for them. Because what they were saying is the exact opposite of what they were doing. Mm. So they they were this uh, international seminar was extremely... By the time Klaus Schwab went to the international seminar, uh, he says... Uh, famously he says uh the Klaus Schwab says I was talking to my father and he said the only place that you could possibly succeed in the world is if you go to Harvard and Harvard really was the central uh, center of the nuclear debate yeah. Henry Kissinger uh and Kissinger's international seminar was a massively important um uh event for young global leaders and that that sort of stuff but at the same time uh Henry Kissinger is writing um a nuclear war and Foreign policy. Uh, he's studying at the CR, at CFR. They're, they're gaming out all of the strategies that they have to use because it was on the front of all of their minds through all of the 50s that there was going to be nuclear holocaust. And by about 1957, they started to come out of this. They, they start to realize that, well, in actual fact, nobody wants to press that button. Mm. And for every person pushing down to press that button, there's like 14 hands lifting them up yeah. because there's, you know, there's loads of safeguards and the mutual destruction security. Yeah. And, and they, they became, Kissinger started to set a new narrative and it was about limited warfare. Everything was going to be about limited warfare. This included, um, in, and was that including also proxy warfare? Yeah, yeah. Well, you can't have war that wins. You can't have a side winning in a war. And very famously, you look at Vietnam. It was set mm. up to be like that. And it's so strange because if the Americans had done it properly, of course they would be able to take Vietnam. They were extremely powerful. They were able to, you know. Okay, so Eisenhower warned us against the military industrial complex, and it's like Julian Assange said about Afghanistan. It's it's not a war to be won. It's a war that they need an endless war so as to yeah. keep going the the industry. And that's what yeah. that's what Kissinger created during that time. That was his right. ethos. Is limited war meant enough war, but never ending war. It mm. meant you always had to be on the edge of fear because the nineteen fifty they were able to get so much done um, uh, and so much thinking done and so much policy written just with everybody being scared that they were about yeah. to be destroyed by a nuclear bomb. And they knew that wasn't going to last forever, yeah. but they need to make it in other areas. Plus, it's a way, it's a way to grab uh, natural resources around the world. <laughs> Before we go on, Johnny, should we take a quick break? Uh, fill your cups, empty your bladders, and then come back and continue the story. Yeah, you can if you want. I'm I'm okay personally, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm happy to take a break. Okay, so let's uh, continue in part two, and uh, hopefully you you know where to pick up the the story. Yeah, go. Cool. Okay, let's do that. Okay. All of our files are free, and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the pay link on our webpage. Thanks. <laughs> 